Welcome, everyone. Uh, as we come back to our seats, uh, if you have your Bibles, if you would please turn to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in the book of First Peter, chapter 1, today. What is joy? What's the first thing that you think of when you think of the word joy? You know, during this time of year, the holiday season... Uh, it's easy for us to maybe think of, of some of the Christmas carols that we sing. You know, we sing things like joy to the world. Uh, or in, in some songs we sing uh, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, right? We sing these things and we, the Christmas carols tend to have this, this theme of joy. They're, they're more upbeat typically. And, and, and anyways, <clears throat> it's, so it's one of the things we kind of think about during this time. But when I hear the word joy, one of the first things that I think of I have kids, so one of the first things I think of is the Disney movie Inside Out. So if you guys have ever seen the movie Inside Out, the story is about an 11-year-old girl named Riley whose life is uprooted when she moves uh, from one area of the country, I believe it was Minnesota, all the way across country to California. And so uh, her, her life is just uprooted. She loses her friends, and all of these things are changing in her life. And so at first she tries to, to assume this joyful persona that she's had over the course of her life, her 11 years of life, right? This joyful uh, life that she has. Uh, but over time, you see her world starts to crumble, and these other emotions start to take over of sadness and fear and anger. And so as we go through the story, uh, the movie is, is actually narrated by these characters inside of her head. They're all of those distinct characters of joy, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. Those are the main characters that we hear. Uh, and those are the emotions inside her head. And they're these little characters. And initially in the story, you see that joy has control, like literally has control panel that she's at. And she's, she's managing uh, where she is going, right? Uh, but then, like I said, over time, her world starts crumbling and she starts to lose that joy. Literally, joy becomes lost in the story, and she has to find her way back. And so, but anyways, as we look through it, some of these other emotions take over. And through the course of the movie, you find that there is a place for those emotions, right? There's a place for sadness, and there's a place for fear, and sometimes there's a place for anger. But she sees that even in that, all of it is still grounded in joy, right? Joy still finds her way back, and she takes control again. And everything is grounded in that joy. Even in the hard times, the hard memories and the hard experiences that she faces, Riley can find this joy in her life. But since we're talking about a Disney movie and we're not talking about a Christian-themed movie, we know that that joy that she has is, is not grounded in anything real, right? I mean, there's, there is joy, and we see the problem that we need joy, but they don't have a correct solution to it. Right? They don't have the right answer. What is true joy? So it's an unreliable joy. It's grounded in these earthly things. But I believe as Christians, we can have joy. We can have joy in something that is much, much greater, right? We have a joy that is rooted and grounded in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As John Piper uh, defines it, he defines Christian joy as a good feeling in the soul that's produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And I believe that that is a joy that we can have as Christians. And I think as we look in the book of 1 Peter, we can see that same kind of joy, this joy that's rooted, it's grounded in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins his letter, he's addressing 
the elect exiles in verse in verse one. He writes to these elect exiles who are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then after he introduces the letter uh, with this greeting, he goes into to what's known as a eulogy or an anthem of praise. He starts to praise God for it. And that's what we're going to look at today, uh, beginning in verse 3, uh, if, you'll, if you'll read along with me. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we read this, we, uh, uh, one thing to understand is, is actually if you, the full context goes all the way to verse 12. And verses 3 through 12 are one long sentence. The entire thing is just one sentence, which is, it seems kind of crazy to us, right? I mean, it's, it's, as we read it, that's, I mean, it's a run-on sentence, right? It's just on and on and on. But in this, in the Greek language, that was a very common thing. It was something that, that they would do to, to pronounce their praise. They're praising God. And it's kind of like, uh, for us, you know, if you've ever been excited about something, right? When you're excited about something, especially, I mean, this is especially true with kids, right? Whenever we hear, they have something they want to tell you about, and they just keep going and going and going, and they're and they just don't stop, right? They just keep talking about this thing because they're so excited about it. Well, that's the same thing here. That's what Peter is doing. He is so excited. He is so overwhelmed with joy that he's speaking in run-on sentences. It all comes all together. It just is flowing in his mind. He's overflowing with joy. And that's the same thing, the same idea for us. We should have that same praise, that same joy. But the reality is, I know there are so many of us that don't live with that joy. Even as Christians, uh, we have, we may put on this facade, right? We put on this facade that, you know, we, we act cheerful. You know, we go through the motions. Uh, we put on the show for those around us and, and make it seem like everything's okay. But the reality is we're not living okay. I believe in this text, we can find the reason for our joy. The reason that even going through hard times, even in difficult circumstances, we can have joy. We can rejoice. Uh, and specifically in this, in this passage, Peter is, is speaking of a joy that we have in our salvation. We can praise God for the salvation that he has given to us. And I believe in this text that there are three aspects of that salvation, three different aspects in which all Christians should rejoice. And now in light of the holiday season, I know maybe some traditions that, that some people may have is, is maybe to watch or read the story of a Christmas carol. And I know in the Christmas Carol, if you're familiar with it, the story is Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts, right? He's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. 
looking at this text, I think we can see our salvation and we can rejoice in three things. We can rejoice in our salvation past, we can rejoice in our salvation present, and we can rejoice in our salvation future. So the first thing, as I said, we can, we can rejoice, and Christians should rejoice in our salvation past. That's our regeneration. If you look in, in, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's our regeneration, is our past salvation. Well, what is regeneration? Regeneration essentially is, uh, one definition of it is, it's the act of God, uh, act whereby God awakens the dead spirit of a person, restoring the ability to respond to and have a relationship with him. So it's this spiritual vitality. It's this reality that, that you were once dead, and now you have been made alive. That's the idea of regeneration. And so as we read through this text, we see that regeneration brings hope to us. He starts with this this anthem, right? This anthem of praise that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He focuses his passage, whereas in the first two verses, his focus is on the people, right? These elect exiles. Well, now he shifts the focus to blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus is now not on those elect exiles, not on the foreigners, the strangers in this land, but it's on the God who is in control of them, who is overflowing them, is, is giving them this joy, this salvation, and something that they can rejoice in. See, this eulogy format, this idea of the blessing, this uh, was a very common thing uh, in the Jewish culture, in Jewish tradition, but Peter makes it a very Christian uh, distinction in it, in that he speaks of Jesus Christ, right? Because the Jews would not have, have spoken specifically of Christ in this sense. But in the first three verses of the book of 1 Peter, Peter mentions the name of Jesus Christ four times. So clearly, he has a different perspective, right? He is wanting to focus on the centrality of Christ in our salvation. If you compare this to a standard Jewish blessing, uh, one example that I found uh, it. This is just a blessing that's in a, in a Jewish book of prayer. And this is what it says. Speedily cause the offspring of David thy servant to flourish, and let his horn be exalted by thy salvation, because we wait for thy salvation all the day. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who causest the horn of salvation to flourish. As you read through that, this longing that the, in this Jewish prayer, it's almost depressing, right? It's almost, it, it's, I... It's saying, I, I wait for your salvation. I'm looking for your salvation. And let the offspring of David, please let that offspring flourish. But it's completely contrasted with the way Peter speaks. And, and it kind of reminds me of, uh, in the movie, Despicable Me Too, which, yes, I know I'm giving another children's movie illustration. I have a lot of kids, so I've seen a lot of kids' movies, okay? So in, in the movie Despicable Me Too, uh, one of the characters, one of the girls, her name is Agnes, and she's a child who doesn't have a mother. And in the story, uh, she's given an assignment for Mother's Day to recite a poem, right? And, and she has to recite this poem as a, school, as a school assignment. And when she does it, as she's practicing it uh, for her dad, this is how she says it. She goes, she kisses my boo-boos. She braids my hair. We love you mothers everywhere. Right? <laughs> It's, it's, 
she doesn't have she doesn't have a mom at this point in the story, so it's not real for her. And so it's, it's depressing almost, right? She, she just doesn't have that reality, that sense. And that's almost the sense that you get in this, in this Jewish prayer book too, is, is they're longing for something, but they don't have it. They haven't experienced it. But Peter is different, right? Peter has experienced that. He knows that salvation and he's overjoyed. He says, blessed is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He exclaims it, right? He's excited about it and he's overflowing with joy. And that's the same idea for us. We should be overflowed, overflowing with joy. And you see in verse 4, or at the end of verse 3, sorry, uh, it says that it, this uh, blessing is according uh, to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. This idea of, of mercy, right? It's, it's uh, as you read through the book of 1 Peter, this, there's this emphasis on God's grace, uh, and, and that God's grace uh, is, is for us both present and future. Uh, but as, as one author says it this way, it says, if grace embodies for him all that God gives, mercy is the quality in God himself that motivates the giving. And so out of such qualities, God has saved the people and made them his children. So he is giving us grace, but he gives us grace according to this mercy this quality of mercy that is within God. And because of that mercy, he has given something to us. And what has he given us? It says it there, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Think about that for a second. He has caused us to be born again. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves in order to be born again. In the same way that there's nothing that we can do to cause or prevent our physical birth, right? There was nothing that I could do to prevent myself from being born. It just happened. I couldn't stop my mom and dad from, from having me. And in the same way, I can't stop my spiritual birth, right? We can't, we can do nothing to prevent that from happening. He has caused it to happen. Why has he caused it? It's, it's according to his mercy, right? So that means it's not anything that we have done in and of ourselves. It is by his mercy. And so this shows us that not only is, is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how Peter begins the blessing. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, he has given us new birth. So the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is also our God. And he is also our Father. And that is why we rejoice, Right? That's something to give praise for. I mean, that is absolutely worthy of our praise. Am I right? I mean, we praise God. You have given us this new birth. But not only does this hope come from within himself, from God himself, also we see at the end of verse 3, uh, this hope that he gives us. So this hope is a living hope. Right? It says that he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, and then in verse 4, to an inheritance. So he's given us a living hope. Hope. This idea of a living hope means it's not dead, right? It was dead. Once upon a time, it was dead. We were dead in our sins, but now it is alive. We have been made alive in Christ. And that is hope. It is living hope. It's eternal hope. <clears throat> Hopelessness is, is such a common thing. I mean, even among us today, but looking back during this time, uh, there's a, a Greek tragedy, a play um, about Oedipus. Some of you may be familiar with the story. I won't get into the details of it, but, but the author of the play, he concludes with two things, really. He says that 
the best thing is to not have been born at all. That's the hopelessness that he had. It is best to not be born. But the second best thing is if you died at birth. That's a pretty hopeless mentality, right? I mean, he is essentially saying life is worthless. Life is meaningless. It is hopeless. It would be better if we had never been born. And even if we were born, it would be better if we had died at birth. But that's not unlike the way some of us believe today, right? We have this existentialist belief, this materialistic philosophy, you know, that, that nothing really matters. So let's just do what we can while we're here because nothing else matters. But in contrast, as we read this, we see that the Christian's new birth has been achieved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Christian hope is ever-living. It is an ever-living hope. Why? Because Christ is ever-living. He is the ground of our hope. Jesus Christ is the grounds for that hope. And as you see, it's, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's given us this new hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter encourages us to praise God because our salvation is nothing of us. Our salvation is nothing that we can do. I did nothing to deserve it. I did nothing to earn it. He has given it to us by his grace according to his mercy. And because it comes from God, that means it's something that can never go away. Right? It's, it's something that, that we don't deserve it, but we've been given this privilege, this blessing as believers in Christ. That's something to praise God for, right? So he's given us hope. Not only has he given us hope, as you see in verse 4, also he's given us an inheritance, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The Israelites in the Old Testament, they had this hope of an inheritance, right? They had this hope of, of a land that God had promised them. I am promising you this land that's going to be reserved for you. So even when they were in the wilderness, that's what they looked forward to. I have an inheritance. I have this land that I'm going to inherit. And so that's what kept them moving forward was the promises of God of an inheritance. Well, what we have as Christians is so much greater than that, right? Because what they had was temporary. What they had was earthly. But what we have it says that our inheritance, it is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. Not only that, it's kept in heaven. It's not here on earth. It's in heaven waiting for us. Uh, <clears throat> one way that I've heard this, heard this explained, this idea of it, of it being... Uh, sorry. Uh, of being imperishable and undefiled and unfading. So this inheritance, it's untouched by death... It's unstained by evil, and it's unimpaired by time. And it's com compounded of immortality, of purity, and beauty. Right? That's our salvation. That's what we have. It's, it's immortal. It's never-ending. It's pure, and it's beautiful. That is what he's saying. Is That is waiting for us. It's reserved for us in heaven. So it's being kept for us. It's being preserved. So God has it ready for us now. It's not anything that we need to do now. We don't have to do anything to prepare that, right? It's there. I mean, we have a job. Obviously, we have a job to do to grow in our Christ-likeness. But we did nothing to earn this. 
and it's there. It's ready. It's waiting for you. And that's what he's saying, is it's, it's there for us. And then in verse 5, it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. So this, he transitions a little bit and talks about not that inheritance, not that salvation, but instead the focus is on the people, the heirs of that inheritance. And he says that they, those of us who are believers, those Christians, we are being guarded. We are being protected by God through faith. That's our, that's our responsibility. That's where our responsibility comes in, is, is this aspect of faith. So God is the initiator, right? He's the initiator of the action. He caused us to be born again. He's reserved this thing for us in heaven. But our job now is to live faithful to that. That's, that's how we are guarded. That's how our faith, that's how our uh, inheritance is guarded, is through our faithfulness. And the reality is, as you read through 1 Peter, that faithfulness that they had, it's the same faithfulness that's alienating them. As you, as you read, we didn't read it, but the beginning of the letter, he's, he calls them elect exiles. They were dispersed amongst the people, right? They, because they were being persecuted, they were forced to disperse. And that's the reality is, is that uh, is, it's because of their faith in Christ that has led to this, to this reality, right? This reality that they were going to suffer. So the question is, why does God use faith, though? Why is faith the instrument of God's, of our power, right? Why is, why is, why are we guarded by our faith? Well, the reality is because faith is not any achievement in our own selves, right? Faith is not anything in and of ourselves. Faith instead is trust in God's achievement. We trust and we believe that God has done this for us. And because of that, we live faithful to it. So it's nothing in and of ourselves, but it's trusting and believing in what God has done for us and trying to live according to that. So that's the first aspect that we have, is that we should rejoice in our salvation past. So that's our regeneration, our our past salvation. Now as you get into verse 6, I believe uh, we see the believers should rejoice in our salvation present. And our salvation present uh, could be known as sanctification, is another term that, that we could use for that. What is sanctification? Essentially, sanctification is, is God setting apart the believer for himself. Uh, one, one definition I found of it is, is that sanctification is the outworking of the new life given in regeneration. So we've been regenerated. Now our job is to, to work out that new life. You know, Paul says that in Philippians, to work out your salvation. That's the idea, is we're growing in our Christ-likeness, being faithful as we are going through our struggles in life. And that's the reality of it, right? As you see in verse 6, we see that this sanctification, it comes through trials. Beginning in verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been guarded, or you have been grieved by various trials. We rejoice even in the midst of our trials. So when he says that, in this you rejoice, he's referring back to that idea of hope that he talks about in the previous two verses, this idea that that we have this hope of the new birth. And because of that, because we have that hope, we can endure through our trials. We can endure through those things. And as we endure in those trials, that is us growing in Christ-likeness. So we are, uh, he is enabling us uh, to be able to suffer 
even in our current situations. And not only that, to do it with joy, right? He says to rejoice, rejoice in your suffering. It seems contrary to what, to what we would normally think, right? That, that, that we should rejoice. Why am I rejoicing? I'm in pain. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. Well, it's because the focus, again, is not on us. It's not on the reason we are suffering is because of our faithfulness to God, right? That's, that's the reality of it. And so as we read through this, look at it again, um, we know that it says uh, it's temporary. This, this trial, these temptations, this, uh, this suffering that we face, it's temporary. As it says, uh, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. So our hope in Christ points beyond the trials, right? Our troubles will only last for a little, little while but our hope in Christ remains forever. And then again, it says, if necessary, you've been grieved. Well, uh, this statement is actually um, a conditional statement that really it could be since uh, it is necessary, right? It's instead of, it's not just if it's necessary, but it is necessary for you to endure trials as Christians. That's just the reality of it. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter is saying here because that's what Jesus experienced, Right? Jesus experienced that same suffering because of the things that he was teaching. And that's, so why would we expect anything different? Why should we, as followers of Christ, expect to not receive those same kinds of persecutions that Jesus faced? <clears throat> and when he talks about it, again, it's, it's these various trials, which he doesn't specify it here. It just says various trials. But I think as you read through the book of First Peter, in the context of it, these various trials are specifically things that we suffer for the sake of Christ. They are specifically because of our faith, because of our belief in Christ, we will face persecution in this world. So it's not talking about, I don't think it's talking about just the random, you know, things that happen on a daily basis. You know, we do go through trials and circumstances that don't necessarily have anything to do with with our faith, it's just the realities of life, right? It's just the realities that, that sometimes hard things happen in our life. But I think in First Peter, he is talking specifically about the hard times that we face because specifically of our faith. You see, uh, the reason these Christians here in the book of First Peter were suffering was because they had the results of salvation in their lives. And this Christian living was now grating against a sinful society. And so they were trying to live faithful to Christ in the midst of a sinful society. And because of that, they were facing persecution. Uh, So one author put it this way, that suffering, uh, when properly understood and applied, is the wake following uh, salvation's boat. So if, if salvation is the boat the suffering and the persecution is the wake that comes behind that boat. All of those waves that come as a result of that salvation. Uh, it's the, the bumpy times, you know, the hard times. Those are realities because of our faith in Christ. And those who, who live faithful lives in an unbelieving world will find opposition, both to their ideas and to their practices. And so looking at us here, especially here in America we may not face those same everyday persecutions that other people have had to deal with. You know, I mean, I mean, we, we see it. We've seen it. You know, people being driven out of countries because of their faith, because of the gospel. Uh, we see people who are being exiled from their families in other countries because they are renouncing you know, whatever faith they had, whether it was 
renouncing their Muslim faith for Christianity, and they are completely exiled and rejected because of that. That's a reality in our world today. And we don't necessarily face that here in America, but the reality is what Peter is saying is we should, at least in some capacity, feel that. And if we are not feeling some sort of persecution, if we have not suffered for the sake of Christ, then the question is, how faithful are we living to Christ? If we haven't received some form of rejection or some form of persecution for the sake of Christ, I think that it should probably be a bigger part of our lives than it has. Um, Just the reality of it. So we see that sanctification uh, also, it proves your faith. In verse 7, it says, The tested genuineness of your faith. So suffering proves that your faith is genuine, but it is not proved through the process of going through suffering, but instead it's the ultimate value of your faith is demonstrated towards others through suffering. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but it's, it's not the actual act of suffering uh, that's proving our faith. It's, it's just the reality um, that our suffering demonstrates that faithfulness. So, and Peter talks about that uh, in chapter 3. In verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So he's saying you will suffer for righteousness' sake. That's just the reality of it. We will suffer because of our faithfulness to Christ. And the reality is our suffering actually demonstrates our faithfulness to those around us. And that's what Peter is saying here. And so he doesn't want them to, uh, to confuse this idea that the testing of their faith is in some way a failure in their faith. But instead, it's, it's proving their faith. It's demonstrating that. You know, that's something that is, that's common, uh, commonly taught today is, I'm going through pain. I'm going through suffering. So that must mean I don't have enough faith. I need to have more faith. And if I have more faith, I will be blessed. Well, what Peter is saying the complete opposite of that here. What he's saying is, no, you will face suffering. You will face persecution. And that's just the reality of it. it in fact, it proves that you have faith. That is the test That is the genuineness of your faith. It is proven uh, in the midst of these trials and sufferings. And it's more precious than gold. It says, The tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. In this world, in the ancient world, uh, in Peter's day, gold would have been seen as the most valuable of all precious metals. It was used uh, in the worship of false idols, of false gods, but it was also used in the worship of the one true God, right? It was, it was, uh, they used gold in the temple uh, to, to show the value, the weight of how glorious God is, because it's valuable. In the Roman Empire, a single gold coin was the equivalent of 45 days of pay, 45 days of work. A month and a half of work was one single gold coin. That's how valuable gold was to them. And so what Peter is saying here is that your faith it is more precious than that. Your faith is more precious than this gold that is seen as great value in this earth. 
but our faith is much, much greater, uh, much greater value. It is much more precious. Why? Because it is precious to God, and it, and it has lasting value, because we know that gold eventually will perish. Peter talks about that in his second letter, uh, this idea that of, um, of the destruction coming through fire, and that, that one day, all of the things of this earth are going to perish. Everything is going to, uh, to go away, essentially. And what will be left is our faith. <laughs> that is one aspect that, that is going to be left. And so Peter's point here um, is just that, that uh, the Christian faith that has been proved genuine will be shown to be the most precious of all because it will deliver, uh, deliver one from the final day of destruction when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that's what we see uh, here at the end. Uh, the tested genuineness of your faith, it says it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So once again, we see that it's God. God is the one that is doing this action. Uh, he is the one who is crowning the genuine faith with praise, with glory, and with honor. And it's because of their faithfulness to God, because they have been faithful to God, they are not receiving praise and honor and glory from their society, right? They are receiving the opposite of that. They're receiving suffering, persecution, and pain. <clears throat> but the difference is now, because you are faithful, you're not receiving this from society, but one day you are going to be receiving this from God himself. He is going to give you this blessing of praise and honor and glory. And ultimately, uh, he will do this when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's when Christ returns, right? Seth talked about that at the beginning of, of the service, that during this season, we, we tend to look at the first advent. We look at when Christ came, and that's important. Absolutely, that's important, because he came and lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on the cross for our sins. But now we anticipate and we look forward to this revelation of Jesus Christ that Peter talks about here. We anticipate his return when we will receive the full, uh, the full uh, glorification our, of our salvation. And, that, and that's the last point uh, that I want to look at, is, is that believers should rejoice not only in our salvation past and our salvation present, but now in verse 8 we see uh, the believers, we as Christians, should rejoice in our salvation future. And our salvation future is that glorification. You see, it's the point, uh, glorification is really the point at which the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of end times really meets, right? It's, it's this idea of, of the perfecting of our spiritual nature uh, within the individual believers. Uh, and that will happen when it ultimately, it begins in death, right? Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then ultimately at the coming of Christ, we will receive this fully glorified state, <clears throat> When you look in verse 8, you can see that we love, we love him and we believe in him. That's what Peter says, uh, says in ver beginning of verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. So Peter, Peter had a different perspective than us, right? And he had a different perspective than the people he was writing this letter to. Because when Peter could think about the love of Jesus, he could actually picture Jesus, right? Because he was there. 
he was there with Jesus. And he could recount story after story of, of the time when Jesus came to his mother-in-law's house and he cured her of this fever and they had a dinner together, right? And so he lived this life with Jesus. Uh, he may have thought of, of the time when he saw Jesus walking on the water and he jumped out of the boat and started walking there with him, right? But then he started sinking and Jesus raised him up and lifted him up and saved him uh, from death, saved him from drowning. And what did he tell him? He said, you of little faith, right? He's calling Peter to have faith. Even though he's there with him, Peter was uh, struggling with his faithfulness to God. And that's, the, that's what he's doing here now is he's saying, you're struggling, be faithful to God even in the midst of those struggles. Uh, Peter could have been thinking of, you know, when he denied Jesus three times, uh, when Jesus was in the hall of the high priest, and Peter denies that he even knew Jesus. And in one of the Gospels, uh, it says that after he denied him the third time and the rooster crowed, Jesus and Peter caught eyes with each other. And so he, he would have seen that. He knew in that moment, the shame that he had, that he had just denied knowing, even knowing his Lord, knowing his Savior, and he ran away in shame. Or for another example, uh, after the resurrection, uh, Jesus is on the shores, shores of the sea, and he's talking to the disciples, and he's specifically talking to Peter. And he says, Peter, three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And again, he says it a third time, and it says Peter was grieved because he said a third time, Peter, do you love me? So Peter, even though he had seen Jesus, he struggled to really know what that love is, what it means to love Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> but here, Peter is saying, you guys haven't seen Jesus. Even though I've seen him, you have not seen him, but you still love him. That is something to rejoice in. You love him even though you haven't seen him and you believe in him, you trust in him, you follow after him even though you haven't seen him. And the reason why is because we know that in our present persecution, our present circumstances, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He says that our momentary light afflictions are nothing to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. Right? We have this future hope, this future glory to look forward to. And so when we look at it in that light, everything that happens in this world is just a momentary light affliction. Maybe it doesn't feel like that to us now. I mean, it feels pretty heavy, right? It feels like a pretty heavy burden. But in the perspective of God, when we think about it in this, in this reality that, that we have a future hope, we have this glory, a glorious future to look forward to, it is temporary. It's light. It's momentary. And it results in ultimate salvation. So even though you don't see him, you believe in him, you love him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So he says you are filled with joy and glory. That's a present tense. It's a present thing. You are currently, it's not that you will have joy or you will have glory, but you are filled with joy. And he says it there, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. It's unspeakable. It's an overwhelming joy. 
is radiant with glory of the day when he will appear. So again, it's, it's kind of like Paul in the book of Romans. When he's talking about our salvation, Paul says, uh, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When you read Paul, in, read Paul there in Romans, he speaks of glorification in the past tense, in the same way that our justification, our calling, our election, all of that is a past event as believers. And we look forward to a future event of glorification. But Paul is so certain of our glorification that he speaks of it as if it's a past item, a past tense action. It's something that has already happened to us. So we, that's how, how much we can anticipate it. That's how, much, how sure we can be of it. And that's the same thing Peter is saying here is, is that we rejoice with a joy that is un- inexpressible, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So the faithfulness of Christian believers has as its proper end the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So readers of this letter, the original readers and we as Christians can have that same hope. We can have the same uh, joy. We can have that same joy in the salvation that we have, both past, present, and future. So as we think about that, looking in our past salvation, as a Christian, as Christians, the question is, are we rejoicing in that fact? Are we rejoicing in the fact that God has caused our new birth? That we were dead, right? Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. We were walking according to the course of this world. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We were walking according to the lusts of our own flesh, the passions and desires of our own bodies and flesh. And it says that we were by nature children of wrath. So we were children of wrath, and now, according to 1 Peter, he has caused us to be born again. He has given us new birth so that we are no longer children of wrath, but instead we are children of God. That's something to rejoice over, right? Are we rejoiceful? Do we have that joy in our lives? And are we living faithfully in light of that? Are we living faithfully in light of that position that we have in Christ? And then looking in our present salvation, what does it look like for us as we're going through trials? Are we suffering for the sake of Christ? Do you realize that when you suffer, you are you are experiencing suffering like Christ. If you were suffering for the sake of Christ, Peter says in chapter 3, later on in his letter, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christ has suffered. So when we are suffering, when we are going through persecution, when we are going through trials, we can know that... Jesus Christ has gone through suffering for us. And so we can use that as our hope, the hope that we have to live in, in our present sufferings, in our present circumstances. We can grow in Christ's likeness because Christ also suffered. So we must suffer too. <clears throat> and then looking at our, our future salvation, this, this glorification, the question is, do we eagerly 
anticipate that future hope that we have in Christ. You know, he says that we are heirs with Christ. And even in the midst of our suffering, we can rejoice. Again, another thing Paul said in Romans is, is I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the same thing that Peter is saying here is, is we rejoice with joy inexpressible. It's so overwhelming that we can't even express it. How joyful we should be because of that hope that we have in Christ. So we must live a life that is filled with joy, that's overflowing. And it's not the joy that Riley discovered in the movie Inside Out, right? Her joy, her joy was still rooted in the things of this earth. You know, the things of the world, her friends, her family, the other things that she did in her life, uh, the recreational things. That's where her joy was found. And those things in and of themselves are not wrong. They are not bad. But ultimately, they don't bring the lasting hope. And they don't bring lasting joy. But instead, our joy in Christ is rooted not in anything of ourselves, but it's rooted and grounded in the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. He has saved us. He has given us new birth. And we can live through our sufferings because we have a future hope. So our hope is anchored in the past, and our hope remains in the present. And one day our hope will be completed in the future. And that is something to praise God for. And in those things, we should rejoice. Let's pray.